morning, Chapel family. I'm Ted Voltmer. I'm one of the pastors here at the chapel. As Paul mentioned, today is the first Sunday of Advent, so let me be among the first to wish you a very Merry Christmas. So we're joining with the Christian church all over the world to observe the season of Advent. It's the four Sundays in December, including Christmas Eve. Many centuries ago, Christians started setting aside the month leading up to Christmas as a time to wait for the arrival of Christ. So for this month, we'll be focusing on God with us, which comes from the Hebrew word Emmanuel. This Advent season, we'll discover that the biggest problems in our lives and in the world around us trace back to the same source, our lack of Emmanuel. And we'll see how the story of Scripture from the Garden of Eden to the stable of Bethlehem and beyond is really the story of God with us. How we lost his presence, how we keep trying to get it back, and how what happened that first Christmas is the turning point in the whole story. Our discipleship team put together an Advent calendar to help you stay grounded during the busyness of the season Each day, you'll find a simple devotional question, a prayer prompt, a song to focus on, and you can do this on your own, with your family, or in your small group. It's really well done, and you can find it on the groups tab of our website. I want to thank Susan and Jackie and Andrea for putting that together for us. So I have to tell you, I love Advent and the Christmas season. I really do. I love everything about it. The music, the trees, the cookies, the lights, the cookies. I don't know. I even broke out the Christmas socks today. Check that out. Every week it'll be a different, come find me, I'll show you. But um, what I, and I love the decorations. The staff did a great job. We had a lot of fun decorating all around this week. Yeah, thank you. Looks really great. So I especially love the Christmas movies. The Christmas movies are classics, right? I must have watched It's a Wonderful Life a hundred times. Seriously, how many people have seen It's a Wonderful Life? Right? I mean, look at that. It's a great movie. It's a great story of family and friends and redemption and what's really important in life. But what if you never saw the movie? What if you didn't know the story and you came in at the very end? You'd see George and Mary and the kids in front of the tree, surrounded by all their friends, but you'd have no idea what's going on. What's everyone doing in the house? Why is there a pile of money on the table? Who names their kid Zuzu? (laughs) Right? You wouldn't really appreciate the ending because you don't know the backstory. Or take a Christmas carol. If you came in at the end, you'd think, what a nice old man that Scrooge is giving away all his money, taking care of Tiny Tim. No, you wouldn't appreciate the transformation he went through and the lessons that he learned because you missed the rest of the story. One more. If you only saw the end of a Charlie Brown Christmas, you'd see a bunch of kids singing around a beautiful Christmas tree. You'd have no idea what they went through to get there. Well, you get the idea. Too often, though, we do the same thing with the true Christmas story. We come in at the end. We see Mary and Joseph traveling to Bethlehem, Mary expecting a baby at any moment, having to spend the night in a stable because there's no other rooms available, giving birth to a baby boy. 
Shepherds watching their flocks by night, a choir of angels singing, kings bringing gifts. It's a beautiful story, but we're coming in at the end or at least the middle. So we have questions. What is Jesus, the king of kings, doing in a manger? Why does the son of God have to come as a baby? To fully appreciate what's happening, we need to know the whole story. And for that, we have to go back to the very beginning all the way back to Genesis. Our story opens in a beautiful setting, the perfect setting, actually, the Garden of Eden. God has created paradise. And in this perfect setting, God placed man and woman. They would take care of the garden and they had everything they could ever want or need. And they had a very close personal relationship with God. It really was the picture of the Hebrew word shalom, which we translate peace, but actually means so much more than that. It speaks to a wholeness, a completeness that comes from being in harmony with God and being in his presence. They totally understood the meaning of Emmanuel, God with us. Genesis 3, Genesis 3 is a familiar story. We all know about Adam and Eve and the garden and the serpent and the forbidden fruit, but the story is familiar in another way. We know it so well because it's our story, even if we don't want to admit it. Here's what I mean. Adam and Eve were confronted with a choice. They could follow God and remain in his presence, or they could do whatever they wanted and risk being on their own. And we are faced with that same choice every day, multiple times a day. Well, I'm going to teach through the passage as we go, but here's where I'm going. Embracing God's grace is the key to enjoying his presence. Embracing God's grace is the key to enjoying God's presence. Follow along as I read from Genesis 3, starting with verse 1. This is the word of God for us. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Hmm. So here in the very first verse, Satan takes the form of a snake. And before he tempts Adam and Eve to take the fruit, he wants to weaken them by planting a seed of doubt in their mind. Satan wants to create distance between them and God, and he's just so devious, so subtle in how he does it. Let's not miss what he does here, because Satan does the same thing to you and to me every day, and we need to be on guard against it. He starts out by saying, did God really say you can't eat the fruit? He's not denying that God said it. He's more twisting what God said, almost mocking what he said. Like, come on, Eve, you can't eat from any tree in the garden. Who would believe that? I thought you were smarter than that. But Eve, to her credit, she pushes back. She says, no, you're wrong. We're allowed to eat fruit from the trees in the garden. God lets us do that. But the tree in the middle of the garden, we can't eat that fruit or even touch it. She added that part. Or if we do, we'll die. 
You're not going to die. Come on, Eve, lighten up. Satan's not trying to win the whole argument here. He's just trying to plant that seed of doubt. He just wants to open up that small crack, that quiet whisper in the back of our mind that says, well, maybe this isn't really true after all. Maybe God doesn't know what's best for me. I might actually be better off without him. I know this is what many of our students face all the time. I had the chance a few weeks ago to sit in on a chapel student's foundations class in one of their small groups. And the things that the students shared and the questions they asked were just so powerful to me. Things like, will God really forgive everything I do? And how do I respond when my friends are doing something I'm just not comfortable with? Caesar Tapia and our student ministry leaders are so good at creating a safe place to bring any questions and doubts, and I'm so thankful for that. So, more than anything else, Satan wants to stir up doubts within us because he knows what that can lead to. Oswald Chambers, the Scottish evangelist and teacher, said it best, the root of all sin is the suspicion that God is not good. Sin starts with doubt. Doubts in both directions, really. Satan wants us to question whether sin is really that bad, and he wants us to question whether God is really that good. Anytime you start to feel like God doesn't care about you, that he's cold and distant and disconnected from you, please know that is a lie from the father of all lies. And tell Satan to stop in the name of Jesus. Call him out on it, and he will back off. Now, you may be thinking, well, no, I believe God is good, of course. I would never doubt that, and I believe you. If I asked everyone right now, do you believe God is good? I'm sure everyone would say, yes, of course he's good. But do we really live like we believe God is good? Let me give you two questions to ask yourselves, two quick questions you can use to see if you're living like you believe that God is good to us. First, am I more focused on what I don't have than what I do have. If we truly believe that God is good and wants what is best for us, then we'll be content with what we have and whatever situation we're in. We see that in, in, with the Apostle Paul when he wrote in Philippians 4 that he's learned to be content whatever the circumstances. If we don't really believe that God is good, however, we'll, we'll focus on what we don't have instead of looking at all the ways that God has already blessed us. I was talking with Caesar about this passage, and he pointed out that Adam and Eve weren't grateful for all that they had. They still wanted more. They're in a perfect setting where they have access to God directly, and they wanted more. And that's how Satan can tempt them. When he said, your eyes will be opened, they thought, huh, maybe I am missing out on something. Even with all that I have here, maybe there's something more out there that I haven't even seen yet. And their lack of contentment and their lack of gratitude led them into sin. Am I more focused on what I don't have than what I do have? Second question, what am I doing? What am I doing to find comfort and rest? Now, this question comes from author and speaker Paul Tripp. He points out that once we begin to question God's goodness, we quit turning to him for help. Because you don't go for help to someone you no longer trust. 
If you no longer believe that God is loving and faithful and gracious, you won't run to him for hope and peace. Instead, you'll seek out earthly saviors who will provide the supposed rest and peace you think you need. And this could be drugs or people or television or food or a host of other numbing agents. Now, Tripp is not saying that spending time with other people or relaxing in front of TV is a bad thing. No, of course not. But if those things are your sole source of comfort, the only way you find rest, then maybe you've just drifted away from God and you're starting to wonder, is he really that good? So let's pick up our story in verse 6. When the, women saw, when the women saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So Adam and Eve decided that they knew what was best for them. They made the choice to disobey God and do what they wanted instead. And that, that is how sin was introduced into the world. And they got what they wanted. Their eyes were opened. They were in control. But it just led to shame and hiding and separation from each other, and separation from God. Sometimes, sometimes, it takes getting what we think we want to reveal what our actual deepest need is. This is Louis Zamperini, an Olympic runner who later served in World War II. During his time of service, Zamperini was shot down over the Pacific, survived 47 days at sea, and then survived two more years as a prisoner before coming home at the end of the war. Zamperini's story was told in the book and movie Unbroken. Now you would think that what he wanted and needed most was rescue from those terrible conditions. Well, he did need that, but it wasn't enough. After returning home, he struggled with PTSD and he began drinking heavily to cope with it. His wife, Cynthia, was a strong Christian and eventually asked him to attend a Billy Graham crusade meeting. Well, Lewis went, and after hearing Graham speak, he turned away from alcohol and gave his life over to God, eventually changing so much that he was able to go back and forgive the enemy soldiers who had mistreated him. What Zamparini really needed wasn't just rescue, but a total transformation that only Jesus can provide. When he finally embraced God's grace, he began to enjoy the peace that comes from being in God's presence. Well, if Adam and Eve's story ended with verse 8, with them hiding from God in the trees, it would just be sad. But things are about to turn around. Verse 9 may be one of the most beautiful verses in the entire Bible. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Where are you? How great is that? Every time I read this verse, it just crushes me. It's just so unexpected. God knew where they were hiding. God knew everything that happened. But there was no anger, no yelling, no guilt, just grace. 
God calls out, where are you? I'm looking for you. Come back to me. Well, you know the rest of the story. Adam walks out dressed in leaves and God's asking, what's going on? And Adam's just unbelievable here. He completely throws Eve under the bus. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And he's saying this right in front of her. How do you think that went over? Yeah, the first doghouse probably. No, thank you. But first, he blames God. God wants to know what happened. And Adam says, well, the woman you put here, she did this. Eve blames the serpent. God curses the serpent, tells Eve that childbirth will be really painful. For Adam, his work will be much harder now because the ground is cursed as well. And it's going to start producing thorns and thistles and kale and broccoli and stuff. No. (laughs) They also have to leave paradise. But in the middle of all this, God is incredibly gracious. And he promises that someday everything will be restored. It's actually the first time the gospel message is shared in the Bible. God is talking to the serpent here in verse 15 when he says, I will put enmity, enmity, a constant fighting, constant battle between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And here's the gospel promise. He, the offspring of the woman, will crush your head, Satan, and you will strike his heel. So God's promising that an offspring of Eve, who we know will be Jesus, God's own son, will come to earth as a baby and ultimately go to the cross, crushing Satan and any power he has over us in the process. Jesus will have to suffer and die to accomplish this, But he will then rise again, which is why God says that Satan will strike his heel. It's not a mortal wound. See, God understands how serious the situation is. It wasn't just about eating forbidden fruit. It was deciding to disobey God, to turn away from him, to do what I want to do, about putting myself in God's place over my life. And once we've done this, once we've separated from God in this way, we're no longer able to enjoy his presence. Before Adam and Eve were forced to leave the garden, God sacrificed an animal to make clothes for them. That was probably the first time they ever experienced death. Adam and Eve are still processing all that's happened, but they see the impact of the choices that they've made. A sacrifice was required because of what they did. Someone had to die because of their sin. We know this story so well. It's easy to focus on Adam and Eve and the snake and the fruit. But when we do that, we lose sight of what God is doing here. This story is really about God's grace. When Jesus was on earth, his audience totally knew this story. They understood sin and punishment and sacrifice, but they would have wrestled with the concept of grace. So Jesus basically retold this story in the form of a parable to help them understand what God's grace looks like and what it means. It's probably his best known parable, the prodigal son. Jesus makes it clear that the father in this story represents God and the son represents you and me. And Jesus wants us to see how God responds to our sin. Well, you remember the story. The son comes to his father and says, Uh, Dad, 
I kind of wish you were dead because then I'd get a lot of money and I could do whatever I want. So instead of waiting for you to, you know, die, could you just give me my half of the money now? <laughs> so after he insults his father, he takes his inheritance and the son heads off to the city and he blows it all on partying and drinking and who knows what else. He just has this big old time. He's living his best life until the money runs out. Then he has nothing, no friends, no food, no place to stay. And to make things worse, there's a famine in the land. And so the only job he could find was feeding pigs. So he's out there doing that. And one day he says to himself, I should just go back to my father. His servants have a lot better than this. I know I can't go back and be a son again. That's over. There's no way he's going to take me back as a son. I'll just ask him for a job. So he heads home and he's thinking about what he'll say when he gets there. And as he's walking along, he's practicing it over in his head. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. But before he can even get up to his house, the father sees him coming. He was watching and waiting for him all the time, thinking, where are you? Well, the father takes off running to meet him. And you remember what happens next. He tells the servants, quick, bring the best robe I have and put it on him. Wait a minute. Shouldn't he like suffer a little or something? Shouldn't you make him grovel? Maybe make him pay you back? No. No, now that he's admitted he's a sinner, let's make everything right. He said to his servants, bring that robe, bring a ring, put a ring on his finger. A ring on his finger? Well, that's like you're restoring him to sonship. Yes, I am. But look what he did to you. Sure, but he's my son. And now he's back. But doesn't he owe you something? No, no. Put sandals on his feet because he's not a servant. For this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and now he's found. That is grace in action. And all the son had to do to enjoy his father's presence was to embrace his father's grace. The concept of grace is the cornerstone of our faith, but it's such a difficult concept to get our head around. Grace is just hard to put into words, but when it hits us, we should be overwhelmed by its power. It's kind of like an avalanche, so stay with me for a minute. Thousands of avalanches occur in the U.S. and Canada each year, and when they do, tons of snow can move in a matter of minutes, completely changing the landscape and covering over everything in its path. The men and women who study these things tell us that four factors have to be in place for an avalanche to occur. Certain conditions are needed. There has to be a steep slope, a lot of snow, obviously, but a weak top layer of snow and then a triggering event. And 90% of the time, that triggering event is a person, a skier, a hiker, a snowmobiler, who does something to set it off. God's love for us is an avalanche of grace. 
He's always with us, always loving us. And he loves us because he loves us, not because of anything we've done to earn it. And he expresses his love through his grace, his unmerited favor. He's giving us way more than we could ever earn or deserve. And when the conditions are right, when I finally start to grasp the depths of my sin and how much I've hurt him, and when his spirit calls out to us and says, where are you? And we turn around and take that first small step of faith back towards him. His love rushes, rushes over us in an avalanche of grace. It covers everything we've done and everything we were. And we'll never see ourselves or we'll never see others the same way. Again, that's the power of grace. So as we go through this Advent season together, focusing on Emmanuel, God with us, I want to ask you to do two things, two things. First, let Advent remind you of the power of God's grace. Advent is all about preparing for the birth of Jesus. So be reminded that God in his grace has already met our deepest needs. Remember that he is right here watching and waiting for you. Embrace God's grace and let the awareness of what he's done for you and the power of that grace help you to be more gracious to those around you. Second, be present. <laughs> be present. I know how busy this time of year is, how busy everyone gets, and everything just gets busier as the holiday gets closer. But wherever you are, whatever you're doing, be present at that time. Enjoy the people you're with. Enjoy the moment that you're in. And don't worry about what's next or what you need to do tomorrow. And take time to enjoy God's presence in prayer and personal worship. Since this is the first Sunday of Advent, let me close with a story about my mom and Christmas. My mother loved to entertain. She was always inviting people over. Sunday dinner was an event in her house. The dining room table sat 16 people, and there was always someone new each week. It could be someone from church, someone she met at the grocery store. We never knew who was going to show up and be at that table. Well, the Christmas season was like her Super Bowl. Every corner of every room in the house was decorated. Everywhere you looked, there were trees and wreaths and candles and bells. It was over the top. Christmas music was constantly playing. Every bathroom had these little Christmas soaps in different shapes, right? And you'd never see her replace them. But every day, there was a different shape in every bathroom. I don't know where she stored all this soap, but she must have hundreds of these things. On Christmas Day, the house would be packed. Family, of course, but friends and friends of friends. And just as we were sitting down to dinner, there'd be a knock on the door and someone I never met would say, uh, your mother invited me to Christmas dinner. Of course she did. <laughs> Come on in. And they'd have a seat at the table and she would treat them like a guest of honor. But here's why she did it. My mom was painfully aware 
of who she had been and what her life was like before Jesus. And because of that, she understood the power of God's grace for her embracing his grace and enjoying his presence with every, was everything. And she wanted others to experience that same thing. So everything she did, especially at Christmas, pointed people towards Jesus. Amen. Please stand with me as I pray for us. Let's pray together. Father God in heaven, you are so, so good. We thank you for the gift of your son. Father, at this time of year and every day of our lives, help us to be overwhelmed by your grace. Help us to understand how much we need a savior. And in this season of Advent right now, Father, I pray that you would just help us to focus on the coming of Jesus, celebrating his birth, and allow that to motivate us to love you more and to love those around us. Father, I would pray for myself, I pray for each one of us, that we would just be so consumed with your grace that it would change everything we see and do, and that we would in turn just share that grace with those around us. Now, dear God, I ask you, watch over your people, bless your people, bless them and keep them. Turn your face towards them and be gracious. Father, make your face shine upon us and give us peace. It's in the precious name of Jesus, the King of Kings, that we pray all these things. Amen. 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 God bless you.